0: Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our equip ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you for uh, the grace that you give us in Christ. Uh, We thank you for uh, your sovereignty and care in Uh, these different prayer requests that we mentioned and uh, we thank you that uh, you love us and uh, as we'll study in Colossians, we just thank you so much for uh, the love and peace that we experience in Jesus and uh, we ask for your help tonight uh, to rest in him and to trust your word and to uh, live according to it and so help us we pray and uh, thank you for the time we have uh, to look into your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So we'll run through some of our background material. Uh, Not much has changed in this. So why was the book of Colossians written? It was written to address uh, some false teaching that had arisen in the church. And Paul heard about this from Epaphras, who may have been uh, the pastor or the church planner uh, originally at the church but now uh, he knows him from where he's writing. And so he hears word about what's going on in the church and the people are being tempted away from what they started on, uh, where Jesus saved them and they were uh, walking with him and he was uh, the focus of their lives. And they're being led away into different ways of experiencing God and trying to uh, get God to do the things that they wanted. So the two different ways is legalism, where they do things in order to get blessing from God, and then mysticism, where they were promised by coming to God in certain ways that they could experience God more um, than what they're promised in Christ. So we studied that in chapter 2, where it discussed uh, how some of these things are good things, but they're just shadows of things to come and Christ is the substance. So we studied how Jesus is true religion, um, not holidays and Sabbaths and things like that, as Paul mentioned. And then later on, he talked about how people were worshiping angels, and so perhaps that's one of the ways they were promised that they could experience God more is if they approached him through angels as angels are messengers from God. But what we learn in the rest of the book as Paul addresses uh, some of these errors is that our fullness in the Christian life comes in Christ. So we picked Colossians 2, 9 through 10 to be our theme verses. Uh, So verse 9 says, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So the reoccurring theme of the book of Colossians is you don't need to go anywhere else You need to set your mind on Christ and focus your life on seeking Him. And so the theme for the class arose out of that, that we can live life in our supreme and sufficient Savior. So we need to keep going back to Jesus and keep following Him. And then we broke the book into two parts, and this is the first lesson in the second part. So the first part of the book primarily deals with Uh, what we're to think about in the Christian life, and who Christ is. And that's kind of the engine or the fuel that helps us in Christian living. So uh, you can kind of see how it's broken up there. The preeminence of Christ in Christian thinking. So who is Jesus? How are we to think of him? What is he like? And then part two, the preeminence of Christ in Christian living. So in this part, we'll see it not depart from thinking correctly, but focus more on uh, how we're to start living life in the fullness of Jesus. So the picture in our text today, as we start out the second part, is that we need to take off the old man and put on the new man. It's a very visual picture of, uh, as we learned in the previous chapter, we've died with Christ and we're alive in him now. And so now in our... Uh, That's true of us positionally, but now in our walk with the Lord, in our lives, we need to do that. We need to live out our position. We need to take off the old man who's still present, but doesn't have any power over us anymore. We can choose to kill the old man, or we can choose to wear him, and then uh, put on Jesus. So that's uh, where we're headed tonight. So this is our ninth lesson in Colossians. Uh, 3, 5 through 17, and the theme is get rid of the old you and put on Jesus. So Paul is pretty violent here. He's going to talk about putting to death the old man, and so we'll talk about it in terms of of killing, because that sounds violent and aggressive. Um, In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, uh, how many of you have read The Great Divorce? or interacted with it. It's a fascinating story. It's all hypothetical, but it's a hypothetical of what it would be like in uh, C.S. Lewis's imagination for people on earth to visit heaven. So they get on a bus or a train, I can't remember, and they go up to heaven and they kind of experience what it's like. And the premise of the whole thing is that people don't go to heaven because they don't want to. So we as natural people don't fit into the spiritual realm of heaven. So, he draws lots of conclusions based on his theology but the premise is kind of fun that, like John 3 says, people don't come into the light because they love the darkness is is kind of the premise of the whole thing. So, when the natural people get up there, they look around and everything up there is like ghostly and spiritual and weird and they don't understand any of it and they one by one leave because they don't like it, because it's not what they want. So that's kind of the premise of it, take it for what it is, it's just his imagination. But I wanna read uh, a portion, it's kind of long, I don't know if we'll read all of it, but there's this one guy, um, so the the humans that come up are uh, referred to as ghosts, and then there's angels up there as well. So uh, the human, People are like the unreal things in heaven. So he kind of like flips the way we think about it. But it'll be great. Um, And the issue with this man is he has, I think what um, C.S. Lewis is illustrating is our old nature. And it's this lizard sitting on the guy's shoulder. And the angel's like, hey, I could could kill that for you. And the guy's like, ah. But I like it. <laughs> so, so we'll read a little bit. Um, so this is written from like if one of us was standing there watching this happen. So it's first person. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was un- unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, though this one was dark and oily, What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. So he's heading the right way, and then the lizard whispers to him, and he turns around to go back. "'Off so soon?' said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body, too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a a summer day. "'Yes, I'm off,' said the ghost. "'Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. "'I told this little chap,' here indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, but he insisted on doing. Of course, this stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop, I just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well... I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you how can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why you're hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward. But it isn't that, really it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me before I knew? It will be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hand uh, hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say, quite innocent. Have I permission? Said the angel to the ghost. I know it won't kill, I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I? Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as never I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it off while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed on the turf. Ow, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. So it goes on then to describe how he kind of transforms into a new person after that. But it kind of personifies what we're going to be studying of when we trust in Christ, well, before we trust in Christ, we're controlled by our old nature. And you can think of it personified as our nature telling us what to do. And it has power over us. We have to obey it. And it may not always tell us to do bad things, but, but we do good appearing things and bad things. But then when we trust in Christ, uh, the power of the old man is removed, but he's still there. And we have to continually kill it in our lives. We have to put the old man to death uh, every day and live alive to Christ. And so that's part of the way setting our mind on Christ plays out in real life, is we put to death the old man and put on the new man. So hopefully that story uh, personifies uh, around what we're talking about today, and maybe it helps you think about it. So, in Colossians 3, verse 5, uh, it starts out right away. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. So, this is the first really practical thing uh, that Paul gets to here. So, we're going to call it in 5 through 11 here, excuse me, get rid of the old you. So, we talked about last week when we are setting our minds on Christ, We're learning to think less about ourselves and more about Jesus and others, and this gives us some practical ways to do that. So in verses 5 through 7, we're going to learn to kill the old, selfish Ryan. So you can put your own name in the blank there. See what I did? (laughs) Uh, Because that's a lot of what the Christian life is, is killing yourself. So not physically, obviously. We're talking about... Uh, in our walk with the Lord, that we're putting to death uh, the sinful, selfish, old nature that still resides within us, but no longer has power over us. So let's uh, work down through here. Uh, So at the beginning it says, therefore, so he's looking back to uh, verses 1 through 4 that really summarize that Christian thinking. So when we have our minds set on things above and we're seeking the things above, then uh, we're able to start taking steps into putting to death our members. So, put to death, that's a very clear uh, violent act. Uh, you think of like an execution. Executions don't happen by accident. It's a calculated decision made with judgment by some governing body <coughs> to end something. And. Uh, have that be over with. And so this has the idea of continually doing this. We're putting to death our members which are on earth. So the members are specifically referring to our bodies, and our bodies reside on earth. So the idea, as it'll play out here, is stop using your bodies for sin. Because you're alive spiritually in Christ, you have died with him and been made alive in him, And your mind is now set on Christ. Now you can stop using your body for sinful purposes. And so he lists several here. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he lists several uh, sexual sins, things that people use their bodies to do, the members of this earth. And he's saying, stop doing that. You don't have to do it anymore because you've died with Christ and you've been made alive in Him. Don't use your bodies for sin anymore. Set your mind on Christ and uh, use your bodies for other things. And he, he draws the connection here. He gives those... I've um, got to count fast. Five uh, lists there. And then he says, which is idolatry? And so covetousness is can be kind of at the heart of a lot of sin, and especially sexual sin. It's wanting something that you don't have. And that's idolatry because it's circumventing God's paths of good things uh, in our own time. So we're, we're going around God. Instead of worshiping God, we're worshiping things. So it's something we'll, we'll look at in Romans where we worship the creature rather, rather than the creator, sorry, the creator. And uh, we get those backwards. So he lists those things and he's encouraging them to turn away from uh, these sexual sins that that now they can do. And he's very aggressive about it. He says, kill them, put them to death. Um, And then he lists uh, some other things. Uh, Or sorry, back in verse 6. I got a new Bible, so my eyes are like, have no idea where the words are. Verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So, Paul is kind of raising the stakes in their minds for them. He's saying, God's wrath is being poured out on people because they're doing these things, because they've rebelled against him and haven't trusted in him. So why would you go back and keep doing those things? Why would you return to that having been Uh, reborn in Jesus. So he points out uh, that God's wrath is coming upon people because they've sinned against God and not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of their sins. And he calls them the sons of disobedience, uh, people who have not uh, followed Christ um, into uh, salvation. And then verse 7 is really helpful because it's easy for us to say, well, we're you know we're the sons of obedience; we deserve to be saved. Uh, but verse seven points out in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And this is a helpful reminder that uh, without Christ, we're lost. We're sons of disobedience. We're uh, destined to experience God God's wrath against our sin. Uh, but the truth of this passage is super helpful that in Christ, we're now able to, to kill these things. They no longer have power over us, even though uh, we still deal with battling them. So we could summarize uh, these first couple of verses here as kind of the battle in the Christian life. So, uh, you know, we could work through what these different words mean. Uh, fornication is sexual sin outside of marriage. Um, Uncleanness is, uh, it comes from the Old Testament, has that idea of um, adultery or sex outside of marriage. Uh, Passion is uh, a theme throughout the Bible as something that you're kind of controlled by your inner desires instead of being controlled by uh, affection for God. Evil desire is beyond that. It's the idea of lusting or... Uh, You know, evilly desiring something that that isn't yours or God hasn't given you. And then covetousness, wanting something that someone else has. So, it's not really a spectrum that's given here. You just kind of list things that that we should stop doing. Uh, And not all of us will struggle with that list, but we can uh, take the principle here that our body, our bodies as... uh, part of us that have been born again can now be used for something other than disobedience, for things that please ourselves. Uh, Now we can seek to please God. So this sounds really bad uh, at first uh, thinking of it, but I think it's true in this context, and it's true of kind of what we read in C.S. Lewis' thing, is that our tendency is to kind of kill the things we don't really, or we could do without, and then kind of keep things back for ourselves. So you can kind of think about it like hostages. Uh, You know, we're supposed to put to death our sinful nature and not take any hostages. It's just supposed to be, we're supposed to kill it and it's supposed to be over. And that's not gonna be true in our lives in regular practice because we just battle so much with, with sin. Uh, but it should be becoming more of a pattern in our lives as we learn more about Christ, think on Him more, trust Him more. We should be getting more victories uh, when these desires come up for whatever. You know, you could just name covetousness. Um, that's, that's a hard thing to battle because that's a thing that happens in your mind and other people might not see it. It, it evidences itself uh, in different ways. Uh, but learning to trust Christ with those things and to recognize when we're doing it is the first part of it, Um, but then to put it to death and not keep it. Uh, So that first part is uh, the battle and somewhat the personal battle with sin. As we move on to verse 8 here, uh, the point is, throw away the old rebellion. And this starts to get into relationships in the church. So how does someone who's uh, died in Christ and been raised to new life in Him, uh, how does their relationships look different in the church? So in verse 8, But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And I, and we'll save verse 10 for, for a second here. Uh, but it starts to get into relational sins. Things that we do towards each other. So, he kind of lists, uh, beginning there, three words for, for anger, or wrath, or malice. And you can think about that as a spectrum of you know, maybe, like, fuming to, like, rage and hatred. And he's saying, put these things off. And that's something we wouldn't used to have been able to do uh, in, our, in our flesh and in our own strength. Uh, and then he lists blasphemy. So this could, uh, usually we think of blasphemy in relation to God's name and caring for his name well. Uh, but it could be understood as, like, Slander against another person as we think about relationships here. Uh, filthy language out of your mouth. So that covers a whole lot. Um, I remember I went to a Christian high school and I had a friend who, uh, you know, said he was a believer and he's like, the Bible never says don't swear anywhere. And it's like, well, <laughs> there's no command against that, but uh, the Bible wants us to. Not have anything filthy come out of our mouths. And so that can be culturally uh, clear in different cultures what what those things are. Um, But I think that that helps us to kind of see things not necessarily in black and white, but we want to, when we have our minds set on Christ, we're not going to be quick to jump to, you know, nasty vulgar things or, or swear words or things like that. Uh, And then in verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Uh, So people question, you know, obviously, you know, we shouldn't lie. Um, But is he talking about in, in the church specifically, you know, if I were to confront someone in their anger and they say, no, I'm not angry. You know, some people think maybe it's referring back to that idea of people lying about Uh, not committing these sins or things like that. But either way, uh, the idea here is that that we're truth-tellers, that we're we're people from a God who is for truth, who is truth, and we don't want to be uh, lying. And the reason is, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Uh, So I just want to note there in our point, it says, throw away the old rebellion." So these things are rebellious things. Sometimes it's easy to, to look at our frustration, our anger, and just kind of, you know, scrape it aside and say, everyone gets angry, or you know, whatever it might be. But when we're uh, children of God who have been crucified with Christ and made alive in Him again, we now live under His authority as our Lord and Savior. And to give into anger is no little thing. It's rebellion against Him as our Lord and Master. And there's no guilt in that because if you trusted in Christ, you'll never face God's wrath again. Jesus faced that for us. But there can be shame because we know better. We know that we're not supposed to lie. We know we're not supposed to be angry. Uh, you know, we know all these things, but we still do them. And I think. Uh, shame is an okay thing to feel, but we don't want to stay there. We want to run to Christ and rest in His forgiveness when we confess our sin and uh, make that right with Him. Uh, so that's my encouragement is if you feel guilty over something before God, you're, you'll never be guilty again because Jesus paid for your sin and your guilt and will always be guiltless before God. The law brings guilt, and we're not under the law. But when we turn away from God's grace and work against what He's uh, made in us, uh, that can be shameful for us. Um. So let's step back from this for a second. So we uh, we're looking at this very practically. Paul jumps into don't do these things, put these things to death, throw these things away, don't do these anymore. But what he's encouraging us here is just to live out who we really are in Jesus. So we know that uh, on our own, we're sinful, guilty before God, have no way of gaining salvation and the righteousness we need to stand before God on our own. And so the only thing that's left for any person is to come and trust in Jesus. And Jesus gives us His righteousness and takes our sin and guilt and pays for it. And so we're dressed, you can think about it, we put on a righteous robe, Jesus' robe, the new man, and we take off the old man, the the guilt, the sin, the slavery to sin, and Jesus takes that and pays for it on the cross for us. So when you trust in Christ, that is true of you. That has happened positionally, and when God looks at you uh, legally, He sees the righteousness of Jesus uh, when he looks at you. So you think of uh, when Jesus is being baptized and the voice comes from heaven from the Father and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, Some people would say that Jesus earned our righteousness in his life, but at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was already the beloved Son of the Father in whom he was well pleased. And so Jesus has divine righteousness, and that's what we get in salvation. And when God now looks at us, he looks at one of his children and says, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased, because we're dressed in Jesus' robes. So that's the beauty of the gospel. And then the beauty of gospel life is that now we get to try and live that out by faith in Christ. So that's what Paul is describing here is, yes, positionally, legally, before God, these things are true of you, and they'll never change. It's, it's done. Jesus, uh, by himself, paid for our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. But in our lives, we're, we're working on living that out in sanctification. So, every day, every time we're, we're tempted by... Uh, you know, a sexual sin, by covetousness, by lying, by filthy language, by anger, any of these things, the invitation of Christ is to look to him, to set our mind on him, remember who we are in him, take off the old man and say, I don't have to do that. I have Jesus. And walk forward by faith in the righteousness that we have from him. So, he says in verse 9, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in, the, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So Paul creates this picture here where this is happening all the time. This is a thing that we need to renew, a thing that needs to reoccur in our lives. And so letter C, know Jesus' identity. So that's Uh, what we'll see here in a second uh, is when we set our mind on Jesus and think about who he is and who we are in him, we then are able to put off the old man and put on the new man. So note how he says it in verse 10. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So how do we do this? By renewing, by thinking again about the image of Jesus. So the image of him who created him. So when we think about the image of Jesus, what Jesus is like, who he is as a person, and who we are in him, uh, that knowledge uh, helps us to take off the old man and put on the new man. So that's, I think, why the first half of the book focuses so strongly on who Jesus is and who we are in him, Because now it's pointing us back and saying, remember the image of Jesus. And that's the power we have in the Christian life, is who we are in Jesus. And now we can put off the old man and put on the new. Uh, And then in verse 11, uh, this is part of the reason I think he's talking about relationships in the church in this section. is because he jumps into uh, the unity that we've been created in together in Christ. So he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor, uh, nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So he, he ends this um, by pointing to the fact that you know, there, there's no differentiation in the church. In the church, we're all people who are lost sinners, who have been made alive in Christ, and that's it. We're all in Christ, and that's who we are. We're, we're all equals uh, within Christ's church. So I just love that, that last part, but Christ is all and in all. And he's just summarizing everything, like Christ is in all and in all, and so we can uh, live at peace with each other in the church, which is what he's going to explore in the next section, and uh, learn to put off the old man and put on the new. So that's pretty practical, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, let's say you're about to leave for work and you spill something on your shirt, you know, are you are just going to go to work with grape juice all over your shirt? Dan would. <laughs> I might, it, it happens enough with the boys that Sometimes it's not worth it. But, but these things should start becoming more obvious to us the more we, we walk in the Christian life, the more we live together in the community of the church where we're telling each other the truth, we're not lying to each other, we're confronting each other when we're living in you know, blatant sin and things like that. And uh, I think we, the idea is we're getting better at it, but what's really happening is we're learning to love Jesus better and learning to trust him more and walk with him um, as life goes on. So, uh, it, it can feel discouraging. You know, you might think like, oh, I have a problem with anger, and I don't think I can ever overcome what I've had in my whole life, or, or something like that. And it can feel like you're kind of stuck. But my encouragement to you is start wherever you're at, and the first step is recognizing that that is sinful, that as a believer in Jesus, That's something that, in Christ, he wants us to put off. And he's ready to forgive us for those sins, and we should confess those sins and be forgiven by him. Uh, But then we can start on a journey of learning to trust him more with our anger. And when I feel myself getting angry about something, I can stop thinking about Ryan and start thinking about Christ and others. And that's kind of the, the idea here, is that when we think about the image of the one who created us, we are renewed to take off the anger and put on the peace of Christ and to be able to do that practically. Uh, Any thoughts on 5 through 11? Or questions or anything that you thought of as we worked through that? Yeah, Sheila. What is that word? Scythian? Yeah, Scythian. Scythian? Yeah. It's It's a people group um, off the top of my head, I can't remember uh, specifically who they are. Does anyone remember or have a study Bible that just gives a sentence about them? Isn't it like people, yeah, like a uh, kind of outcasts. Like so we'd so think.
1: Far as to, I believe,
0: China. Okay. Yeah, so it would have been. You have
1: it down? Wiery says that S- uh, Scythian represents. The lowest swarm of uncouth barbarian nomads of southern Russia.
0: Yeah, so they would have been nomadic desert people, outcasts. Not not welcome in society. And so the point there is they're welcome in the church because we're all sinners saved by God's grace. Which is a really helpful thought for us because we live in a world that doesn't like to get along. but we can all get along because we're all equals. There's no distinctions. We're all sinners saved by grace or sinners in need of grace. Yeah, Dale.
1: The interesting part is you're going through that Mm -hmm. is we think about how we respond personally Mm -hmm. and it's spot on. And then if we start looking at others Mm. and they're either ahead of us or behind us or have a different set of whatever it is on their shoulder, mm-hmm. to go back. To, um, we need to think about how we apply these principles in that context as well. And I think, oftentimes, things really fall apart fast mm-hmm. if we don't um, think about the application applies to everyone in right. all different stages.
0: Right. Yep. And that that thought of you know, we're all sinners saved by grace, in need of God's grace. is super helpful because there's no competition, yep. and we're just all yep. in it for Jesus, trying to please Him and do better. So we
1: have to somehow encourage the redemptive part of that. And mm-hmm. not decide it's not
0: our role to be the uh, corrector of the other. Right. Yep. We want to help each other, but we're not the uh, the final judge on right. all of it. And it gets into some of that when we get, next week, when we get into the home, relationships in the home, uh, it in almost all of them, it refers back to doing it for Christ um, with wives and children um, and things like that. You know, it's not a competition. We're, we're doing it for the Lord. Okay, let's plunge ahead. <laughs> we're going to try and make it here. So... We just worked through um, that we need to be renewing our minds and the identity of Jesus. And now we're going to kind of blow that idea up in 12 and verse 12. So uh, 12 through 14 is put on Jesus' identity. So verse 12 is put on his attributes. So again, we have a therefore in verse 12. So thinking about you know, what he just talked about, that Christ is all in an all, and we need to know his image to be renewed. Uh, it's going to zoom in a little bit here. So, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So uh, he, he kind of redirects focus at them in a, in a certain way here. So he calls them the elect of God. So that means that God chose them to be set apart, holy, and to be beloved, to have God's love set upon them. So as a child of God, you were chosen by God to be set apart for him and to have his love uh, bestowed upon you. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, longsuffering. So I think a few things are happening here. I think Paul points to the, to the being chosen aspect because he's saying God has treated you really nicely. <laughs> Can you be nice to others? It's <laughs> kind of the idea. And I think what we see here in these good attributes is what God is like, um, and especially what God has shown us uh, specifically in the person of Christ. So he goes back to the idea of put on. So... That idea of putting on the new man. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. I think a couple of these are mentioned in Philippians 2, talking about Christ there. And so we're we're putting on Christ is what we're doing uh, as the elect. This is part of what we've been chosen to do. So how do we know if we're doing that? How do we know if we're putting on Jesus? Look at verse 13 bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So I think he's, uh, you know, verse 13, put on his grace. But I think in verse 12, we see these these attributes or attitudes or characteristics <coughs> that uh, show up in relationships. And if you're you know, not uh, humble and uh, meek and long-suffering, it's going to be really hard to bear with other people and their sin and their sin against you personally. And so he's, he's encouraging them to, to put on these attributes, uh, put on these things of what Jesus is like, and what will it look like? Well, we'll be living with one another kind of in an understanding way that it's okay that this person sinned against me because I have I've been chosen by God to have his love upon me and so I can bear long with this person in the church who's sinning against me and I can forgive them. And so he goes on to say, forgiving one another, uh, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So the idea there is, you know, Christ... He didn't wait on us to ask for forgiveness or, uh, you know, that type of thing. He he freely offered us forgiveness in himself, and were to behave in a similar way in the church. And this is just super practical. You know, if someone has sinned against you in the church, it's easy to be bitter. It's easy to assign, uh, you know, how they've treated you to what God is like or what all believers are like. Um, It's easy to hold on to those things and let it affect your relationship with Christ. All these things. And, you know, Jesus forgave us. And it's as far as the East is from the West. You know, he's not going to remember it anymore. And we can forgive each other uh, the same way. We We don't have to hold things against one another. And this is just completely different from the world. The world holds on to things. They get revenge. You know, they want... Their bone or whatever. Um, they blackmail each other. I don't know. All these things. And in the church, it's not to be so. We're to show each other what Jesus is like, and Jesus forgave us of our sins and uh, decided to set his love upon us. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of details and complications in real life with being sinned against and forgiveness in relationships and things like that. So, we won't get into all of that tonight, but if you have more questions about that, uh, we can talk about it later. Uh, so then in verse 14, uh, we put on his love. So we get that list of attributes in verse 12, we get the idea of giving each other grace and forgiveness in verse 13, and then in verse 14, he makes this like overarching statement of God's love. And how that's the most important thing to put on for us in the church. Uh, So, in verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So, if you think about the illustration Paul's using here of putting on the new man, you can kind of think about uh, love being like the biggest coat or the most important coat. Uh, the the coat you want to have on, uh, love. So above all, put on love, uh, which is the bond of perfection. So, you know, we're not for sure what bond of perfection means, but uh, there's other places that, that talk about this type of thing. But you can see how love binds us together. And previously he had talked about Uh, You know, there being ligaments bound together and things like that. And it's the same word for bond here. So, the idea is when we're putting on the love of Christ towards one another in the church, uh, we're going to be united, we're going to be bound together, and, you know, as one body in Christ, as sinners saved by grace, in need of God's grace, uh, maturing and having unity as we seek to follow Christ. And yeah, that's just super helpful because love requires us to do exactly what verses one through four is about, where we, instead of thinking about ourselves, we think about Christ's love for us and then how we can love him and love others um, around us. So it it really plays out, uh, setting our mind on Christ well. Uh... Let's push ahead to the third point here. So, put on Jesus' identity through grateful submission. So, Paul ends uh, these verses here by giving some commands. So, in verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, it's, a, it's called like a cohortative here. So he's saying, let's all do this. It's a command. Let's, let's make sure that this is going on. And he wants the peace of God to rule in their hearts. So when we trust in Christ, we're given peace with God. We're, we're reconciled to him. We who were his enemies are brought close and made his friends. So that peace, the peace of God that we experience in salvation, that reconciling peace, is to be a rule in our hearts. Uh, So yeah, then he points out, to which you also were called in one body. So we're all equally enemies of God who have been reconciled to him as friends and be thankful. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? I think that's really helpful. And when we're thinking about our attitudes, it's really hard to, uh, you know, be grumpy while we're giving thanks. You know, those two things are kind of contrary to each other. Um, so thinking about, you know, if we focus on putting on Christ, if we're letting the, the, the peace of God rule in our hearts that he saved us by, we're going to be thankful, right? Uh, you know, how many times have celebrations happened because a war's over finally? And the soldiers have come home and, you know, yippee, we're, we're at peace. And, you know, throughout history, times of peace have always been, you know, looked back on fondly and things like that. And so we can be thankful that we're not at war with God. He's given us peace in Christ and we should let that rule in our hearts. So that idea of ruling um, as a church, that, that should help us in making decisions, in thinking through, you know, is this fulfilling the peace of God by which we've been called all together as one body to salvation in Christ. Um, and then in verse 16, we have another let us. So let his word direct in verse 16. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, So yeah, it it notes here uh, the word of Christ dwelling in us. So you think about what a dwelling is. It's where you live. So we want the word of Christ to uh, live in us. And, uh, you know, what is it referring to as Word of Christ? It's probably referring to specifically the gospel, but on a broad spectrum, you know, everything about Christ. Uh, So let the things you know about Christ live in you richly. So, you know, our lives should be a, a huge store, treasure room of things we know about Jesus. In all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So I think this, uh, the, the purpose of letting the word of Christ dwell in us is to give direction. It's a wisdom thing. It's a teaching and admonishing others thing. So it's not uh, just for our own growth. We're, we're allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us to help each other. So how does that play out? Uh, we do it by teaching. So teaching God's word, admonishing—that means warning. So we're we're warning one another. Hey, you know I've seen the sin in your life. What's going on there? You know, have you uh, confessed that to God as sin? And uh, specifically, we're to be teaching and warning one another regularly by singing to each other, just kind of like. Not what you'd first expect, (laughs) but in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So psalms are obviously the Old Testament uh, psalms that we have, and it could have included other things as well. Hymns are, uh, he's referring to early church songs, probably about Christ. So like Philippians 2 could be an example. Even the first chapter of Colossians here where it talks about Christ. And then spiritual songs. uh, you know, people think this is talking about things that are still to be written uh, as the Spirit directs people. Singing with grace in your hearts uh, to the Lord. So, the the purpose of letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly is to help each other by it's so richly within us that it just kind of bursts out in song, is kind of the picture here, and it's to be something that's, that's helpful to one another. So, Uh, I think, you know, not everyone's musical, but oftentimes uh, the things you meditate upon or hear uh, come out in song or or something like that. So I think this could be referring to uh, like a worship service where, uh, you know, we we all sing, and we're all singing to the Lord, like it says, uh, with gratefulness in our heart to the Lord. But then we're also singing to admonish one another and teach one another. So when we sing praises to God, we are singing them to Him, to glorify Him and honor Him, but everyone's hearing us. They're hearing, you know, that brother or sister trusts in the Lord. You know, right now they're, uh, they're praising Him for how amazing He is. And that can be encouraging to someone that can teach them or warn them, uh, encourage them in their walk with the Lord. Um, so it's that type of idea. And, yeah, so it says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That word grace there, it can be translated like thankfulness um, in other places. So it's, it's kind of that idea of gratefulness or thankfulness uh, to the Lord. So, yeah, and then lastly in verse 17, let his name dictate and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, he covers everything. Whatever you do, whether you speak it, whether, whether you do it, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is a, um, we don't talk this way as much today, but in the name of uh, refers to submission, that I'm here in the name of the King is kind of the way... You know, it used to work. And they'd come with, you know, a letter like, here's the letter in the name of the king that he sent me to deliver to you. That type of thing. So, uh, we're to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he points out the lordship of Christ in the life of the believer, in the life of the church. And we're to do all the things under his authority is what this is saying. So I think these last three points are giving us direction, both as individuals and as a church, of how to make decisions. Uh, We're to let God's peace that we experience in salvation through reconciliation guide us. We're to let the, the richness of the word of Christ dwell within us to guide us, to direct us. And then we're to do all things submitting to Christ's lordship. And then again, it has a thankfulness, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So it's just a completely different picture in 8, or sorry, in 10, I lost it here. Yeah, in 10 through 17 than what we used to be like, the way we used to walk as verse 7 describes it. We're now supposed to look like Jesus because we're submitting to Him, following Him and allowing him uh, to rule in our lives as our Lord. So, uh, he covers a lot here, and he gets specific in a lot of things, but a few takeaways, uh, quickly, is if you've trusted in Christ, you are are free from your bondage to your old self, your sin. You're able to, to see that, to confess it to God as sin, and to take it off. Trusting Christ, uh, renewing your mind in, in His image of what He's like, and then putting on uh, the righteousness of Jesus. And now we're able to show the world what Jesus is like. And, you know, no one's ever been able to do that before um, because they didn't have the righteousness of Jesus and uh, the Spirit within them. So that's, that's the mission of us as individuals and as the church. As it pointed out here is that we're, we're one body, brought here by the peace of Christ, and uh, we're able to be a light uh, to the world because of what Jesus has done. So, uh, Pastor Lance has a fun way of saying this: of uh, when we repent to someone, uh, you know, if I get angry and because I'm thinking about myself and I and I sin against someone in anger, I say, "What you just saw there, that's not what Jesus is like." My job is to show you what Jesus is like because I'm a child of God. This is what Jesus is like. You know, He doesn't get angry sinfully. You know, Will you forgive me? And starting to think in terms of that in our repentance is, uh, did I just show that person what Jesus was like or did I show them what Ryan is like? Am I, am I thinking about Ryan or am I thinking about Jesus? And that that can help clarify some things uh, in our lives because we're to have our minds set on him all the time and to be continually working on taking off Ryan and putting on Jesus as he directs us. So I hope that's helpful. This one really focused in on practically that image of taking off and putting on and the relationships in the church. Uh, Next week, we'll look at relationships in the home, uh, what that looks like when we put on Jesus, and relationships in the workplace or in slavery when you put on Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.